Hello, one and all, and welcome to this Bobby Bonilla Day edition of the Logan Blackman Show. Actually, it's not technically Bobby Bonilla Day anymore, but on July 1st, every year until the year 2035, we will celebrate Bobby Bonilla Day. I know most of you are like, oh, well, Logan, it's 4th of July weekend. That's the big holiday I'm going to celebrate this weekend. Wrong. Wrong. It's Bobby Bonilla Day. And for those of you who are completely unaware about the the spectacle, I guess, known as Bobby Bonilla Day, it is in fact, <laughs> in November 1998, the New York Bets reacquired Bonilla from the Los Angeles Dodgers in exchange for Mel Rojas. Again, his level of play did not measure up to the expectations he had numerous class... And he had numerous clashes with manager Bobby Valentine over lack of playing time. His time, his tenure in New York culminated in an incident during the sixth game of the 1999 NLCS, during which the Mets were eliminated by the Braves in 11 innings, while Benia reportedly sat in the clubhouse playing cards with teammates Ricky Henderson. After his subpar 1999 season, the Mets released Benia, but still owed Benia $5.9 million. Benia and his agent offered the Mets a deal. Bonilla would defer payment for a decade, and the Mets would pay him an annual paycheck of $1.19 million starting in 2011 and ending in 2035, adding up to a total payout of $29.8 million, $29 million. Mets owner Fred Wilpon accepted the deal mostly because he was heavily invested in with the Ponzi scheme operator Bernie Madoff and 10% returns he thought he was getting on his events with Madoff outweighed the 8% interest the Mets would be paying on Benia's initial $5.9 million. As a result, the payoff was a subject of inquiry during the Madoff investment scandal investigation when it came to light in 2008. Well, guess what? Bobby Benia is still getting paid, so congratulations to Bobby Bonilla on another year in another 1.19 million annually. He's still got a decade plus more of getting paid 1.19 million dollars. And this is to a, like this said, a subpar baseball player. Over, I wonder if they'll have his career stat. Oh yeah, over his entire career, Bobby Bonilla averaged a 279 batting average, which is a decent batting average. Had over 2,000 hits, 287 home runs, and had just over 1,100 RBIs. His career spanned from the White Sox, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the New York Mets, the Baltimore Orioles, the Florida Marlins, the Los Angeles Dodgers, back to the New York Mets, the Atlanta Braves, and the St. Louis Cardinals. He's a six-time All-Star, won the World Series in 1997 with the Marlins, and was a three-time Silver Slugger Award winner. All of this was before <laughs> the incident. <laughs> and... That incident, again, will be keep living on throughout the history of sports lore. DiPietro is another example of that from the New York Islanders. It's just a typical New York orange and blue style of thing to do. Don't know why you do it, but Rick DiPietro signed a $15 million contract. He was a goalie for the Islanders, an all-right goalie. I think it's the best way we can describe DiPietro's time in the NHL. All-right. Not worth a 15-year contract. I don't remember the money amount right now. I was just thinking about it looking at Bobby Mania's thing. But dude is still getting paid by the Islanders. And not just with that. They pay him to be a broadcaster <laughs> for the Islanders. So he's getting paid twice to do one job, essentially. But contractionally, he is obligated that 
however much money he gets. Crazy. For a goaltender. This isn't like goaltenders in soccer. Goaltenders in hockey, it's one of the hardest things to do in sports, but you're you're going to be very hard-pressed to find a absolutely atrocious goalie. You can get a good goalie for low money and be fine. You don't need to splurge 15 years on one goalie that's not even the best goalie at the time in his sport. <laughs> that's yeah, you can't you should not do that. Like do you think the Tampa Bay Lightning will splurge and give Andre Vasilevsky a nice 15-year contract? Maybe, but throughout the Lightning's history, they have been really good at making smarter deals. This is our example. These are terms you expect from teams like the Islanders, the Florida Panthers, and teams like that. The Buffalo Sabres. You expect these kind of things from that. Jeff Skinner being the prime example of a weird contract at this point in time. Had a really good year one year. Signed the contract, has struggled ever since, and was a healthy scratch most of last season's atrocity is what the be- the best way we could describe what happened to the Buffalo Sabres last season. <laughs> but hey, number one overall pick. Don't know if dude's going to actually go to the draft. There's talks about he might just go back to Michigan just to avoid playing for the Buffalo Sabres. But man, what's his name? Owen Powers. A defensive line pairing with Owen Powers at six foot six with Rasmus Dahlin would be very fun for the future of the Buffalo Sabres. Very young defense. Probably means a lot of goals. Unless these two connect instantly. But you never know. You never know how this stuff works. Things can work instantaneously like that. Some things can take a little bit more time. And as the Sabres have shown. Unless your name's Jack Eichel. Things are going to take a little more time than usual to develop. Okay? <laughs> and Jack Eichel will not be a part of Rasmus Dahlin. And hopefully Owen Powers development stages while playing for the Buffalo Sabres as he looks like he's past the point of being gone. I've heard links with the Rangers or heard I've seen links with the Rangers, the Ducks, the Kings, the Wild, the Flyers. Uh, There's probably more teams in there that I'm just forgetting about. The Blackhawks have even been linked for him for some reason. I don't know what they're going to give up for him, but there's there's the Kraken have been linked with him as well. There's going to be a lot of teams in for Eichel's signature. If I'm the Sabres, I'm going to try and keep him out of the Eastern Hemisphere. I would not trade him to the Rangers. That just doesn't seem (laughs) smart. I mean, they could give you some good pieces. The Ducks could give you some really nice pieces in regards to draft picks and young players that they have. The Wild, maybe. They could give you a guy like Cam Talbot or something to shore up somewhat your goalie situation. Linus Olmark is not terrible, but he's definitely not a top-half goalie. So and some people might consider throw that into the realm of terrible, but <laughs> he's not a tr- okay. He had a little bit of a rough patch last season, but sort of the entire Sabres. We're not gonna throw that all online as Allmark. So who knows what's going on with them? Wasn't planning on talking about the Buffalo Sabres at all, but you know what? That's the beauty and the joy of not writing scripts anymore. You never know what is gonna get said at any point in time. And while we're just on the topic of money. I was going to talk about this on Wednesday, completely forgot to talk about it, but congratulations to Kyle Pitts, the most guaranteed money for a tight end in NFL history, $32.9 million, more than Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry recently signed contracts with the New England Patriots, Jonu Smith uh, guaranteed 31.2, Hunter Henry guaranteed 25, and more than the two best tight ends of the NFL currently. George Kittle at $23.6 million and Travis Kelsey at 
$1.7 million. But there is a lot on the shoulders of Kyle Pitts, who is supposed to be this generational tight end that can do everything for a team. And I, for one, am of the belief that he will be able to provide that for the Atlanta Falcons. I'm excited to see what he can do. He was awesome at Florida. If you just want to watch one game of Kyle Pitts, watch him against Ole Miss. That was the first game of last season. I watched that game and was thrilled the entire time. I was watching it more for Kyle Trask, but then this tight end comes out of pretty much our left field and just explodes on Ole Miss. And you have Matt Corral there too. Ole Miss's offense wasn't amazing. It was the first game under Lane Kiffin. But it put up some points and made some good plays. So I, it's just a fun game to watch, that Ole Miss and Florida game. If you really want to sit down, I mean, you don't need to watch the entirety of it. You can probably watch, find a 15-minute highlight clip of it on YouTube or something, and you could still get the same feeling about it. Because sitting down for about a three-hour football game for most teams, I'm going to assume here in the state of Iowa, you don't really care about, is asking a lot. Especially if you don't really care about the players involved. I was watching it again for Kyle Trask. Kyle Pitts came out of there as an absolute baller. And speaking of Matt Corral and the quarterback situation for next year's draft, I have been working on a top 20. So as you know, at least I would hope you understand, I have my top 10 quarterbacks for this 2022 draft pretty much picked out. I've got the order down, I think. For those of you who are unaware what my order is, I would probably rank it Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma and Sam Howell as 1A, 1B. Now, there's two completely different styles of quarterback you got there, and you're going to find different rankings for these two. These are the only two you should realistically be seeing at the top of your draft boards at this point in time, with Spencer Rattler being the Patrick Mahomes-esque. Not saying he's as good as Patrick Mahomes or rather be as good as Patrick Mahomes, but he does similar things. He's got an absolute rocket for an arm. His ceiling is insane. He's a good athlete and plays for Oklahoma and plays under Lincoln Riley. And anything we have taught under Lincoln Riley, ever since he's been the head coach at Oklahoma, we know that dude can coach quarterbacks. You look at the last three quarterbacks he's had. He's had Baker Mayfield, won the Heisman, first overall pick. Kyler Murray, won the Heisman, first overall pick. Jalen Hurts, transfer from Alabama, turns him into a second-round draft pick and comes runner-up in the Heisman. And they're all starters in the NFL. None of those guys, before they got to that point, were expected to be where they were drafted. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people are expecting Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray to be drafted first overall when they first entered Oklahoma. If you watched Kyler Murray at Texas A&M, you weren't really expecting a whole lot, but you were expecting a little bit because it's Oklahoma and they're better than Texas A&M. Watching him rotate, alternate snaps with Kyle Allen was just really weird to see. Someone just couldn't figure out which quarterback was better Kyler Murray offered a lot more, but Kyle Allen was the starter. And they both transferred. Kyle Allen to Houston, Kyler Murray to Oklahoma. So yeah, I the 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 Lincoln Rally thing is huge. And then Sam Howell, consistency and personified, very similar to Baker Mayfield, very accurate, but ceiling, I would I think you'd be hard pressed to find people that think his ceiling are high is higher than that of Spencer Rattler's. I, that's just my thinking on the point right now. I like Sam Howell a lot. I know a lot of people like Sam Howell a lot. I know a lot of people around the state of Iowa don't particularly rate Spencer Rattler that highly. So, fair points. I mean, they don't like Oklahoma to begin with because there's a lot of Iowa State fans, especially where I live in Irmandale, Iowa. And Spencer Rattler, <laughs> to Iowa State fans, 
can be kind of annoying. And he got benched against Texas. He had a weird stretch between Kansas State, Iowa State, and Texas. And then after that, he looked normal. But not a lot of fans particularly rate him because of that three-game stretch he had at the beginning of last season. Then you've got, after those two, Malik Willis from Liberty at number three. Beast of a player. A lot of people probably haven't watched a lot of Liberty football. That's fair. They're an independent conference team. Don't play a lot of national television games. I would assume that Malik Willis and Co. get played in a little bit more ESPN games or more primetime games because of the hype that's going to be surrounding him going into this season in regards to the draft. But who knows? Very fun player to watch. Extremely strong arm. Extremely athletic. Plays in a, I mean, not conference. So that's a little bit of a hit. But Zach Wilson got drafted second overall last year. Jordan Love was drafted in the first round a couple seasons ago. Josh Allen was drafted seventh overall. The conference doesn't really matter as much anymore. If they think you can play and they think they can develop you, that's fine. Malik Willis, to me, has the strongest arm in this draft. You can art debate that with me all you want. Spencer Rattler's definitely up there. Carson Strong is another one that's going to be up there as well. But that's what I think right now. Four, Keen Slovich from USC, extremely accurate. Number five, Desmond Ritter, athlete, great runner, inconsistent accuracy, strong arm, big-bodied quarterback, physical runner. I like him. Jordan Palmer likes him. And if Jordan Palmer likes him, I like him. (laughs) Because Jordan Palmer knows how to scout quarterbacks. Six, Carson Strong, really strong arm. Nevada, smaller conference, not getting a lot of big-time game action, but has a cannon arm, very good ball placement, accurate, can move a tiny bit. He's not like a statue, like the guy I'm going to mention next, JT Daniels, but he can move when asked upon. JT Daniels cannot. JT Daniels, though, is that product of extreme hype for whatever reason. College is a little, he's flattered to deceive most times while playing at USC. Georgia, he looked good towards the end of the season, but he didn't get the starting job till later. He's been known to have be a quick processor, a very smart dude. He's the first true, second true freshman to start an opening game for USC ever. So it's a pretty big deal there. We'll see how he is this year. I compared him to Josh Rosen. A lot of hype. Can't really move. Slender build. Injury history. We'll see how he does. He's an accurate dude. Hope he does well at Georgia this year. Then at eight, you have Jaden Daniels. Really like him. Very athletic. Just very skinny. We'll see if his accuracy improves this year. But in the big stages, he has performed very well, i.e. the game against Oregon, number six Oregon, as a true freshman. Number nine, Matt Corral, we mentioned him earlier. Uh, very ad-libby quarterback, I guess, but very erratic quarterback. I think erratic's the best word to use for him because of the fact that he threw six interceptions against Arkansas and five against LSU. That's very bad, I guess, especially against teams Ole Miss should have won. <laughs> against, they should have won the game easily. Maybe not easily, but they should have beat Arkansas and LSU. Should have beat. You can't turn the ball over 11 times in two games and expect to win. That's a little bit of a red flag for me, but his ceiling is high. If he can get everything kind of molded together, I think he'd be a very, very good quarterback, in not only in college, but at the next level as well. If he has a good season this year, he can definitely move up. He's going to be one that rises and falls on a lot of people's lists because of how erratic he is. Hopefully, you can find some sort of consistency. You can say that about a lot of quarterbacks in this draft class, and consistency being the big issue there. And Phil Yurkovic from Boston College is going to be, he's a nice quarterback. A lot less experience than some of the other guys here. One season at Boston College, transferred from Notre Dame. Underrated athlete, 
strong arm, bigger dude. We'll see how he does this year. 17 touchdowns, 5 picks. Not very very heavy on the number side of things, but his yards per carry when regards to, you know, running the football is actually pretty decent. He's one of the few quarterbacks in this list that doesn't have negative career rushing yards. So that's <laughs> that's a good thing. Or not few. I guess you got Slovis, you got Daniels, Carson Strong. And, okay, so three out of ten, whatever. <laughs> it's, close, it's close enough. But that's my top ten. We're working on a top 20. So you're going to see, like, Tyler Show, Emory Jones from Florida, Derek King, Brock Purdy, Michael Penix, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson from UCLA. You're going to see teams like that. But we're working on that. And with these players in college, I know you talk about, like, the goal is to go to the NFL and make the millions of dollars. But now, finally... College athletes are allowed to get paid. And this is a big news. This is very big news because there's been a lot of sanctions, a lot of punishments for players accepting money. You've got like uh, Terrell Pryor trading in jerseys for tattoos was a big issue at Ohio State. Uh, Reggie Bush, the Heisman Trophy thing. That's been talked about a lot today. I think it's time to give Reggie Bush his Heisman Trophy back. One of the most electrifying players in college football history, if not the most electrifying player in college football history, Reggie Bush. Give him his Heisman back. And I think Todd Gurley got in trouble for that as well while playing at Georgia. Memory escapes me on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what that is. But yes, college kids can get played. I know the non-college athletes are going to be excited for the fact that NCAA football games can come back into the fray because that was the main reason they are no longer existing. It's because that Northwestern team decided to go to the court and basically abolish the game. At that point in time, because they're not getting paid for their image and likeness, yet their image and likeness are in the game. Even though it's not their name, it might not look exactly like them. Their number's there, their position's there, they know it's them. <laughs> we know it's them. So, it makes sense to get a little bit upset about that. Like, I'm not getting compensated for being in a video game. Now players can do that. You're seeing a lot of brands get thrown out there today with all these players signing big deals or decently sized deals which is cool. It's nice to see this. Now you got the jersey sales. You're going to have names on the back of jerseys, I would assume, at this point in time. You're going to have a lot of meet and greets. You're going to probably see your favorite college athlete on commercials. So here in Des Moines, Iowa, you're probably going to see Brees Hall and Brock Purdy on some, I don't know, Hickory Park commercials. Do those exist? I don't know, but we'll probably see those on there. Jordan Bohannon had a meet and greet today. Gave out free autographs, but I think he got paid for the appearance. I'm not sure how that whole situation worked out. My dad was telling me about a Jackson State kid getting a $20,000 gig for, uh, I don't really know. I didn't see it. I was going off what he said, but he didn't really know how to describe it either. But it's finally here. Destroying a YouTuber who was on UCF's team for a while, or for a while, for a year. He was a kicker there. Quit because they said, you can't have a YouTube channel. Even though we had 1,000 subscribers at the time or something like that, you can't get any money whatsoever while playing for the NCAA. That's over. And he's a big reason why this thing has gone the direction it has. And I'm surprised it kind of took this long to get this thing over the line, but it is finally here. So let's go. <laughs> I guess is the best way to describe it. Uh, good for them. Good for the college athletes out there getting some money. There is always money in college football, but now... There is not, no punishments can get pushed towards these players. 
that get pressured into taking money from other places. I'm not saying it happens everywhere or all the time, but there are cases where that has happened and players have gotten in huge trouble for that. Now that's no longer the case. And now it begs the question, what the hell is the NCAA even for anymore? <laughs> Why do we have it? It is a garbage organization exploiting college athletes, exploiting kids further left, <laughs> furthermore. It's not a great organization. And I was with a couple friends tonight. I hung out with a few friends tonight, and we were going, one of my friends and I were driving up to Ames to meet our other friend. And we were talking about this whole situation regarding the NCAA and the money now that's involved in the sport. These sports are so much fun to watch. We love sports. I hope that you're listening. To, if you're listening to the show, you know at least like sports. <laughs> if you don't, I don't know what really to tell you. You're listening to the wrong show. But you've got all this, I don't know, you love for these different sports. We love football. We love basketball. We love baseball. But all of these sports have garbage organizations running them. The NCAA exploiting kids, basically, <laughs> and not allowing them to take any money whatsoever unless it's super secretive. You have, like, Ole Miss getting the death penalty a few years ago from, like, players like Laquan Treadwell, Laramie Tunsil, players like that, Hugh Freeze getting fired. I believe it was Hugh Freeze that was at Ole Miss at the time when they got the death penalty. Or not death penalty. They got, what, five or six years erased from the boards? Like, oh, man. I wonder what happened those years. We don't know what <laughs> what happened. We can't go back and find any videos of what happened there or any records whatsoever, even though it's eliminated. Like, it happened. <laughs> they still won a lot of games. They were a very cool team. USC won a national championship. Doesn't matter if you take it away. Reggie Bush still won the Heisman. Doesn't matter if you took it away. He still won it. And most people out there, unless you're a complete moron, are going to acknowledge that Reggie Bush won the Heisman, regardless of what the NCAA says. <laughs> then you got the NFL. Oh, we care about player safety. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Why is there a 17th game then? You could give a rat's ass about player safety. It's all about the money. You got FIFA, soccer for all. Okay? On the face of it, it is a great message. Soccer for everybody. It's an inclusive sport. Everybody should be allowed to play and watch it. Unless we care about human rights <laughs> situations over in the Middle East. Oh, or, you know... We've talked about this, uh, I think, a couple times in this show. But did you know there's a World Cup coming up in Qatar? You know, soccer for all, we're a very cool, forward-thinking organization that just could give a rat's ass about human rights. Qatar is boiling lava hot. <laughs> so much so, you can't play the World Cup in the summer. They're playing the World Cup in the winter. And I'm sorry if you've heard me rant about this before. I'm doing it again because it's so stupid and shows how corrupt FIFA is to its core, <laughs> why is there a World Cup in Qatar? Why? Why is that allowed to happen? You're building stadiums that you don't, you don't have any stadiums, so you're building them. People are dying constantly, basically on slave labor, building these stadiums for a tournament that's going to last a month. There's no Confederations Cup this year, so the World Cup will be lasting from November to early December, or December, all of December. I don't know when the World Cup exactly is. I can't remember exactly when it is. I know it's in either November or December. It lasts for a month. And you know what's going to happen in these stadiums? Most of them? You're either A, not going to fill them, or B, they're going to become abandoned. You look at the 2014 World Cup, even Brazil didn't have enough stadiums to get all the people in for the 2014 World Cup. You know what's happened in some of the stadiums? The few that they built in the middle of the freaking jungle? 
they're getting abandoned. They're having gr- trees grow inside the stadiums. They're abandoned. <laughs> like, the World Cup and the Olympics, on the other hand, are two, like, or two things that bring people together. You get to watch your country, cheer for your country, compete against the other countries around the world. But if you look at the face of it, if you're a country like Qatar, or countries like that, it's crippling. <laughs> if you don't have the infrastructure to handle a World Cup or Olympics, you're basically going to die. That's the grand scheme of things. Brazil had the World Cup and the Olympics back to back. That's not ideal. That is very crippling to the economy <laughs> in Brazil. These stadiums are empty and abandoned. The World Cup in South Africa was cool, but can they fill Soccer City Stadium? No. It is way too big. It's 90,000 seats. Do you think there's 90,000 fans that are fans of the Kaiser Chiefs? I don't know. I don't even know if the Kaiser Chiefs play in Soccer City Stadium. Maybe it's the Orlando... No, it's not the Orlando Pirates. I know that. But maybe I think the Kaiser Chiefs play in Soccer City Stadium. But what are we going to do with these stadiums of guitar? They don't have a rich footballing or soccer history. They've never been to a World Cup. They were about to be de facto partnership or par, uh, what do you call it? De facto participants in the 2021 Copa America. Last time I checked, <laughs> Qatar is not in South America. Okay, is that is that true? I could be completely wrong about that. I don't want to watch Qatar. And the thing is, if your country hosts a World Cup and it makes sense you're automatically making it to the World Cup. You don't want to have a World Cup and not have Qatar make it because there's a 99.999% chance Qatar would not make the World Cup if they weren't (laughs) at home. But because it's a home World Cup, they're there. You can say the same thing about South Africa. They're there. (laughs) These countries do not have strong footballing heritage. I mean, soccer's a loved sport worldwide. It's the most popular sport in the world, but... These countries are not known for their soccer heritage. (laughs) They like the sport. People love the sport. But that's not what they're known for. Sadly, they're known, more so Qatar. Can't really speak for South Africa that much. But Qatar, those Middle Eastern countries, there's a lot of problems with human rights situations over there. But soccer for all, you know? It's a good, (laughs) good message. Unless you read into it and go, wow, it's for all if you can pay for it. Or if you can actually provide us money. Like, it's about player safety. Yes, we of course we play, care about player safety. If you can pay for it. <laughs> oh, we're investing in all these new football helmets and all that. Now, I'm not a scientist or anything, or a doctor or anything. I'm not even, I wouldn't put myself anywhere near the levels of brain power as those guys. But as someone that suffered a fair few concussions in my lifetime... A helmet is not going to do a lot, no matter what it is. Now, I could be completely wrong about this. I could just be talking out of my ass right now. But to me, how I've always uh, understood it was the fact that your brain is floating in your head. Your brain is not inside. Like, your skull is not surrounding your brain. Your brain is just a floating thing inside your head. So no matter how hard you, no matter how much padding you have, your brain is going to move in your head. And if you get hard, hit harder, like players are going to get hit harder because of the technology we have in player development, you're going to get concussions still. 
There's no such thing as getting rid of concussions or eliminating concussions or lowering, lowering the risk of concussions. There's no such thing as that. It's like tearing ACL. You can tear an ACL walking down a flight of stairs. You can get a concussion just falling. My sister got a concussion falling off the bus when we were kids. There's no... You can't escape that. Even though the NFL would like to paint a pretty picture that, oh yeah, we're doing our best to limit the force of concussions. Now again, I could be completely wrong about this. And I'm open to being wrong about a lot of things. But as I understand it, you cannot prevent concussions. Okay? (laughs) Just how I understand it. Again, could be completely wrong about that. Could be 100% completely wrong. But yeah, that's how it is. We're not going to get into like the NBA and China and all that stuff. But these organizations are not great organizations. If we didn't love the sports (laughs) as much as we do, it'd be a very hard time supporting the organization that runs the sport. Like I love the NFL draft. I love the World Cup. I love college football, but the organizations are kind of POSs, if you know what I mean. (laughs) All of them. They like to put on this brave face that there's something that they're not, that there's something that we can relate to. They aren't. We can relate to the players to a certain extent. Now, there's some players that are just God-given natural ability. Other players are hard work and came from nothing and worked their way up and succeeded. You can't relate to these organizations. They're all garbage organizations run by garbage people overseeing the sport that we love, sports that we love. We've already talked about the owners in soccer, talking about the, what was that stupid thing even called? I forgot what that, the European Super League or the Super League, whatever that stupid thing was called. That's another example of that. You're ripping out the core foundations of those teams that were built by the towns. They were built by the cities. The fans built these teams and we're going to rip them out and play Manchester United versus Man City in Miami. That's the problem in sports today. These organizations, these owners that think they can just do whatever they want when these sports were started by Joe Schmo down at the bar. Football was not made by billionaires, but it's run by billionaires. And right, wrong, or otherwise, that's just how the, thing, that's just how the things are. So, yeah, fun stuff. Fun stuff. So let's get more into fun. Let's get into more less angry stuff or less preaching stuff. And let's talk about Euro 2020. So we said we were going to talk about this a little bit more on Wednesday when we did that show. Doing a little preview again. I was hoping that I'd have a further understanding of what I wanted to do for my knockout stage predictions. I still don't really know. I don't know between Belgium and Italy. Okay? I'm not confident in my pick for whatsoever. But I got to make a decision because the game for you guys is today. For me... It's tomorrow, July July 2nd, Belgium, Italy. Do I think Belgium, without Kevin De Bruyne and without Eden Hazard, will that hurt? <laughs> yeah. Because on their day, you could say more so on Eden Hazard because he hasn't been on his day in a very long time, but on his day, one of the best players in the world. Kevin De Bruyne currently is one of the best players in the world. That hurts not having two of the best players in the world when they're on their day. I know Yannick Carrasco and I know Dries Mertens are good players. And I know uh, Thorgon Hazard scored a wonder goal against Portugal. But I'm scared. (laughs) Without those two players, I'm scared. I am nervous with Thomas Vermaelen playing at center back. 
I know I said this on Monday. I said this on Wednesday. He was the best defender Belgium had against Portugal. You know what? That doesn't make the situation even more less scary that Thomas Vermaelen was the best defender for Belgium. <laughs> Just that sentence alone. We're not playing five, six, seven years ago. This is 2021. <laughs> or 2020, regardless of what, whatever we're looking at for FIFA standpoint. But man, Thomas Vermaelen, if he's your best defender, you got some problems. That dude hasn't played consistently in about six years. He's been injured all the time. Now he's playing over Japan for Vassell Kobe or something like that. Dude's injured all the time. If he's your best defender, I got a little issues here. Belgium's defense is like 35 years old, at least all across the back line for the ones that played against Portugal. And they got like Jason Denier, who's a little bit younger, and Dedrick Boyata. I th- is Dedrick Boyata on the team? I feel like Dedrick Boyata started the first game. I could be completely wrong about that. Please tell me. Okay, yes. Dedrick Boyata played, but Dedrick Boyata's 30. Jason Denier's 26. You got some oldies in the back line, and you don't really have a you know, a rich selection of center backs coming up behind Alder Virel, Vertonghen, and Thomas Vermaelen, who has, how many caps is Thomas Vermaelen? 84. Dude's 35 has 84 caps. That is, oh, jeez, oh, quick math. Uh, 50, 45 caps, 46 caps below Jan Vertonghen, and he's a year older. Thomas Vermaelen was a great defender for Arsenal, so much so he got to move over to Barcelona how many games did he play for Barcelona? In the league, he played 34 games over four years. <laughs> That's not not ideal. Played 34 games in four years. It's usually one season. He played one season for Arsenal. His first season for Arsenal, he played 33 games. <laughs> he played in his total career games at Barcelona, 53. That's including all club cup, cup competitions, all La Liga games, all of that stuff. Played 53. His first season at Arsenal, he played 45. (laughs) That's how injury-prone he has been. Ever since the 2013-14 season, where he played 14 games for Arsenal, somehow he swindled away to get to Barcelona, where they already had a pretty set back line that he was definitely not breaking into, especially with the current form and fitness he was in. And then, since he's left Barcelona, he's played 31 games. He's played nine for Roma. I kind of forget that loan move existed. He played nine games there. He played eight games for Vassell Kobe in his first year, 14 the next year, which is, fondly enough, the most he's played in a single season in just the league since 2013, 2012-2013, where he played 29 games. He's played 14 games three times between that, nothing more. That's how injured he is all the time, yet he still got called up for the Belgium national team. <laughs> it's the same thing with Nasser Chadley. I don't know how he's managed to get himself back in the national team, but he did. I don't know how that works. Like Belgium, we said this in the preview, Belgium starting 11 with De Bruyne and Hazard is one of the best in the world. Undebatable. Their depth is very weird. I never know what to make of their depth because they've got some good backup players like Dries Mertens on his day, is one of the most underrated strikers in the world. But he's older. Dries Burton's 34 years old. He's not making the same moves he was making a couple years ago where he was absolutely insane for Napoli. Great backup option. Michy Bashuayi has a great goal-scoring record for Belgium. Scored 22 goals in 35 games. That's good stuff. Decent stuff. I mean, he's not going to start anytime soon. That's good stuff. Leander Dent... 
Leander Dendonker, I'm surprised he hasn't started more since that first game. He replayed midfield. He can play in the back as well. Like, Denier, Boyata, they're backups that can start. I was kind of surprised Jason Denier has not started more games. I thought he would have been the go-to center back in the back three they have. But he hasn't been. They've rotated him, Vermaelen, and Boyata, and Vermaelen played very well against Portugal, so I expect him to start again against Italy. But that back line's old. Torgon Hazard, he's going to have to play a great game. Thomas Mounier is going to have to play a great game. Robo Lukaku is going to have to be firing on all cylinders against Italy. He ain't going to have much room to move around, but he's going to have to be firing on all cylinders. Dries Mertens is going to have to look like himself from a couple years ago. He doesn't start that much anymore for Napoli. Yannick Carrasco, he had some very interesting plays towards the end of that Portugal game coming on for Eden Hazard. He can't do that against Italy. Portugal had a mess of a tournament. One of the biggest disappointments in the tournament right behind France. Portugal were awful this tournament. Their one win coming against Hungary. They won 3 nothing. sure. All three of those goals, I need to look at the exact time frame of when those goals happened. 84th, 87th, and 92nd. Those were not a convincing 3 nothing win. That was, oh wow. Hungary's getting tired. <laughs> We're going to squeak a few goals past him here. And got three random goals at the end of the game. They were not very good in this tournament. Got absolutely played off the pitch against Germany. Embarrassed by Germany. Two own goals. Two of Germany's four goals were own goals. <laughs> so, bad. And then they got beat by Belgium. Bruno Fernandes was not very good this tournament for Portugal. Their back line was not very good. You wouldn't realize Ruben Diaz was just named the player of the year in the Premier League. Wouldn't think that for a second. Rafael Guerrero is a great left back. Great attacking left back. Did not look good. Losing Jao Cancelo was huge. You didn't realize the drop-off between him and Nelson Semedo until that next game when Jao Cancelo was not playing and you saw him against Germany. <laughs> oh, man. And then France obviously losing to Switzerland is a giant L. Giant L. Especially with the way they lost it. We're down early, saved a penalty, and scored two, go three goals in quick succession, and then two goals in the last what five minutes, and then lose on penalties. Man, yeah, killing Mbappe missed penalty is going to be going around everywhere. But yeah, big loss for them. I don't know if Switzerland's going to be riding high on that, or if they exerted all their energy against France and absolutely shit the bed against Spain. I don't know what's going to happen in that game. Spain's running in this super hot. They scored five goals in their past two games. They scored five against Croatia. Granted, it was after extra time. But they scored five against Slovakia as well. They should beat Switzerland. They should beat Switzerland. Player for player, Spain's got this game covered. They have better players in every single position than Switzerland. I guess you could argue. It'd be a pretty bad argument. But you could argue Ricardo Rodriguez is better at this point in time than like Jordi Alba or Jose Gaia or whoever they have at left back right now. It'd be a bad argument, but I'm saying you could try to make it or Granite Jacka on form is better than some midfielder Spain has, which wouldn't be true, but you could go, oh, well, he played one of the best games of the tournament against France. He's not better than Busquets, Coke, or Pedri, so I don't really know if I could do He's not better than 17-year-old Pedri, so I don't know if I could really... Spain's better players than Switzerland, but hey... France had better players than Switzerland as well. I get, no, Jan Sommer is better than Unai Simon. That I will get. I Jan Sommer is better than Unai Simon. So they got one player that's better than Spain's. That's the goalkeeper. 
So we'll see what Spain team shows up. The team that showed up against Sweden that held 85% of the possession and didn't do a single thing offensively other than just pass the ball or the team against Slovakia and Croatia. More so the team against Slovakia because they played really bad at times against Croatia. <laughs> Let them back into the game a few times before absolutely just sealing the door late. But Spain should win that. England, do I need to explain why England should beat Ukraine? That game's not until the third. If England does not make this finals, that is a travesty. <laughs> that is absolutely ridiculous. If you win this game against Ukraine, which if you don't, embarrassing, insanely embarrassing, worse than the Iceland game, maybe, maybe, I don't know, be, it'd be something to get talked about. With how good this England team is, as opposed to that one that lost to Iceland, I think you have an argument here. This England team would shit on that England team. Absolutely. <laughs> it would crap on them. And then if you win this game in Rome, you go back to London. So if you go all the way to the finals, you're playing six out of, what, seven games in London. You don't have an excuse not to at least make the final. I can get losing to Belgium in Italy. That'd be fine. You can't lose to Spain. You can't lose to Switzerland. You can't use the, use the, lose to Ukraine. You can't lose to the Czech Republic. You can't lose to Denmark. And you're lucky Belgium and Italy are going to eliminate one of them. One of them is going to be gone. Those are the only two teams I think you can say should beat England. Everybody else, they have no business beating England. No matter how weird they've looked throughout the group stage, Spain didn't look great in their group stage when they won the World Cup in 2014. Germany, when they won the World Cup in 2018, or 20, no, Spain in 2010, just crapped to bed in 2014. Germany in 2014 drew with Ghana on the group stage and barely beat the United States. So, it's not, doing bad in the group stage is not everything. It's how you do in the knockout stage, and they looked pretty good against Germany. They still haven't allowed a goal. They shouldn't allow a goal against Ukraine unless Andrei Yermolenko decides to crap a wonder goal out of his ass like he did against the Netherlands. But, man... England should make the final. Denmark, I hope, will beat the Czech Republic. I know the Czechs are going to be riding high on this tournament. They've upset a lot of teams. They killed the Dutch. Absolutely wiped the floor with the Netherlands. And, But, hey, Denmark's won their past two games by eight goals. <laughs> so, or, right? They went 4 nothing against Russia. Is that right? My, four to one. So they've won their last game. They scored eight goals in the last two games. Okay, that's what I meant to say. They've won by seven in their last two games. Denmark's got something going for them that's deeper than just what's on the field. It's like, oh, we got to play for Christian. We got to do this for Christian Eriksen. I think that's going to be huge for them. They've got better players than Czech Republic. They do. So I think they should beat the Czechs. I think that game goes to extra time. But I think Denmark comes out on top. I don't think it goes to penalties, but I think Denmark will win probably like 2-1 to one after extra time. That's my prediction for that. England should win 2-0 against Ukraine. Be shocked if they allow a goal. Spain, 3-1 uh, against Switzerland. That's what I'm going to predict there. I think Spain's feeling themselves right now in scoring goals-wise. I think they can halter, to a certain extent, Switzerland's attack. So 3-1's my score there. Belgium, Italy, extra time. I don't think it'll go to penalties. This sucks. So if I go player by player, goalkeeper, Courtois, Donnarumma. Courtois, okay? Defense, old defense for both teams. Benucci and Cialini versus 
Alderweireld, Vertonghen, Vermaelen, Boyata, or who's the other one? Denayer. Probably take Cialini and <laughs> Benucci. Probably take those guys. Midfield. Now, this is a system thing. So, Belgium plays a 3-4-3 with De Bruyne playing as a right winger, more of an inverted forward type thing. Italy plays a 4-3-3. Their midfield of Verratti, Barella, Locatelli, and uh, Jorginho. I think the midfield was Jorginho, Verratti, and Barella last game. Locatelli came off the bench. But those four, rotationally, are insane. They are better than Tielemans and Witzel, I would say. It's close. And then I would say Lukaku over Immobile. But they're Immobile, no slouch. Weird on the international stage, but he's no slouch nonetheless. Wingers, who would be the wingers for Italy? Berardi starts on the right, and Insignia starts on the left. For the wingers that Belgium has, for this game, be Yannick Carrasco and Dries Mertens. Probably lean towards Italy there. So what, the only things you're realistically taking Belgium in are goalkeeper and Lukaku? Losing De Bruyne's huge. That's big. Losing your best player is massive. I don't care how good of a rest of your team you have. Losing your best player is massive. And this is a little different than the situation Denmark has. De Bruyne didn't die, okay? De Bruyne has an ankle injury. He will be back when they, if they make it to the semifinals, okay? I'm going to say 2-1 after extra time, Italy. Crap. I don't like that I said that. I don't like that I said that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> I feel... I just can't get over the fact that Hazard and De Bruyne will not be there. I know they've played without them this tournament at points. Italy's a little different than Russia, okay? I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but sometimes the, the easy things or the self-explanatory things need to be re-explained. I think this is a situation like that. <laughs> Italy is better than Russia. The games you didn't have De Bruyne and Hazard in compared nothing to Italy, okay? Who are on an insane tear right now. I know we said they haven't really played a striker the level of Lukaku or a team the level of Belgium, but man, confidence is high there. I know they looked a little shaky against Austria, but Belgium looked shaky against Portugal, who, in fairness, are better than Austria. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable in saying 2-1 Italy. Do I just stick with Belgium? I don't, I don't want to leave Belgium like that. I like Belgium. <laughs> I really like a lot of Belgium's players. I like a lot of Belgium players more than I like a lot of Italy's players. Man, I still don't know. You know what? I've got I've got a dime. It's a little different than a quarter, obviously, but... Oh, no. I have a quarter. I have a quarter. I found a quarter. We're going to do best two out of three. Heads is Italy. No, heads is Belgium since they're the highest seed in the tournament. They're a one seed in the whole knockout stage thing, the number one ranked team in the world. Tails is Italy. And I'll give you ten sec or five seconds to guess the state of this quarter. Five, four, three, two, one. It's Illinois. So give yourself a round of applause if you got Illinois. So best two out of three. Heads is Belgium. Tails is Italy. This is very intense right now, so get prepared for this. I'll put it next to the microphone so you can hear the flick. Heads. It's Belgium. Belgium is the first one. So if Belgium gets one here... Actually, we'll do this like penalties. Best out of five. So Belgium took the first penalty. Scored. Now we'll see if they... I don't know. Let's just do two out of three. It's too... I don't... 
I don't need to go with Italy if make or miss. So we'll just do it. Belgium's <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. I I'm sorry. It's heads. Two out of three says Belgium. That's what the coin says. Do I do it again just to see how much? That one was tails. But we said best two out of three. And it was Belgium. Do I do a rubber match? First to three? Well, that was Italy. <laughs> now we're just messing around. I don't even know what we're doing anymore. That was Italy again, too. Wow. Three in a row for Italy. Four in a row. Oh, no. That's five in a row for Italy. Do I... I kind of screwed up my own coin thing here. Do I dare do... That's Italy... That's six in a row. I've never seen this type of dark magic before. I think I know that one was Belgium, but I feel kind of stupid. That was seven in a row. Two in a row were Belgium. Then seven in a row were Italy. So that, that last one was Belgium. We'll go to 10. We'll go to 10 since I've already gone this far. There's Italy again. So it's eight to three in favor of Italy. This is intense. Belgium, eight to four. Oh no. Eight to nine to four. Italy. Is this the game winner? Rubber match? Crap, I dropped the coin. That one doesn't count. It's Italy. Ten to four. Is it like ten to three? Ten to four? I don't know. See, the problem is I should not have gone past <laughs> two out of three. I feel less confident now. Do I, do I go with the two out of three or do I go with the seven in a row that Italy had? Confusing times here on the Logan Blackman show. I'm going to do a... I don't know. I can't do this. <laughs> this is too complex. I, I'm not getting paid for this. I don't get paid enough to do this kind of stressful stuff. I don't get paid at all for this. <laughs> I'm, I, it's almost midnight. I'm tired. I shouldn't have been doing this show. I'm too tired. My brain's running circles around my head right now. Oh my goodness. I'm going to say Italy 2-1 final prediction. The coin did it seven in a row. I've never seen that in my entire freaking life. Italy 2-1. Am I confident? No, but the coin said it. <laughs> they said it. The first two were Belgium, but seven in a freaking row for Italy. That could be down. That could be like user error or something. And if Italy lose, I'll take I'll bullet down to lose user error. Believe me, I'm going to go user error. If, if Italy don't win this game, it's because I wasn't flipping the coin good enough. Oh, man, I'm sorry, Belgium. I didn't want to do that, but, man, had to. Had to flip the coin. Had to do it the, uh, is that the democratic way <laughs> to flip a coin? I don't know. But that's how we did it. So, yeah, that's what we're doing for Euros. Italy, Spain, England, and Denmark are my predictions. And now, knowing my luck, they'll all lose. Denmark, Czech Republic will be tough. Belgium, Italy, you already know it's going to be tough. I expect Spain and I expect England to have not easy victories, but shouldn't be as difficult as the Belgium, Italy, and the uh, Czech Republic and Denmark games. So, yeah, exciting stuff there. While we're on the topic of soccer, the United States men's national team released their squad for the Gold Cup, which is very exciting. I'm the the big thing that I was most excited about for the United States men's national team in their Gold Cup. This is a tournament. Now they they do this like every other tournament. It feels like for the United States in the Gold Cup, the Gold Cup's importance, I think, remains the same for the United States. Oh, they want to win it. It's a tournament. You want to win it. But this one seems more like let's field out the squad 
because I think the United States has a fair few positions locked down. I think Zach Steffen's a lock, Pulisic, Reyna, McKinney, Adams, Dest, John Brooks. So you got seven positions on lock, and if I'm forgetting somebody, I apologize, but those are the locks for the starting for the United States. Fill out the rest of the squad. Altidore and Bradley are done. Altidore was in the provisional squad for the Gold Cup. He's not in the team anymore. We did not expect him to make the team. The strikers, pretty self-explanatory. Jayassi Zardes is back in the team. He's Greg Berhalter's number one guy, I believe. Uh, Daryl DK, too good to leave out of the team. Matthew Hoppe from Schalke is in the team, his first. Chance to get a cap for the United States. He's been called up before, but he has not yet gotten a cap for the United States. And Nicholas Giacchini, Giacchini from Kansas City, plays over in France for Khan. He's a very versatile player that we'll see a little bit. You'll have Jonathan Lewis and Paul Areola, I would expect, start on the wings for the United States. He'll go back to a 4-3-3, I would suspect, for this tournament, as the center backs are not the strongest out of they used to, as they usually are. You don't have as much experience. Walker Zimmerman's going to be the main guy in the back. Now, for captain for this team, I fully expect it to be Sebastian Legette. Greg Berhalter really likes Legette. He trusts him a lot. A few games ago for the United States, when they had an all-European team, Legette was the only MLS player in the team. The only one. Out of a team full of European players, Legette was the only one. I know he really likes Legette. Uh, Walker Zimmerman's obviously going to have a real big shot to be the captain of this team as well, because I think those two are really locks for this team. But for the rest of the roster in midfield, you have Kevin Acosta, who I love is getting back in the United States national team. Very gifted player. Has had a very weird time since leaving FC Dallas. Now he's starting to get back in form, and now he's becoming a key player for the United States again. Eric Williamson from the Portland Timbers. They just lost to Austin FC in dominating fashion, and I just finished watching that game with my dad. Uh, Sebastian Legette, like we said. Jackson Ewell. Greg Berhalter seems to really trust him. He's a very steady player playing for the Portland or the San Jose Earthquakes. Very steady guy back there. Christian Roldan's there as well. Hasn't been called up in a little bit. But he is a was a popular player in the early stages of Greg Berhalter's tenure as the United States coach. And then my favorite inclusion, the youngest player, or joint youngest player on the team, Gianluca Busio. Sporting Kansas City's Gianluca Busio. This dude has been playing regularly for the Sporting Kansas City since he was 16 years old. This dude is a baller, and I'm so happy he made the team. So happy. I have his jersey. I got the new Sporting Kansas City jersey right before the season started and got his name and number on the back. The fact he took the 10 jersey for Sporting Kansas City speaks tons about his confidence and knowing how good he actually is. Baller. Can play every position on the field. He plays as a number 6 for Sporting, but has played as an 8, has played as a 10, has played as a false 9, has played as a winger. Dude can do everything. Take free kicks, take corners. I don't know how much action he's going to get, I am boosted in confidence by he could see a few bit of minute, fair bit of minutes by the fact he's wearing number six. A lower number tends to get players like when you see players in the lower numbers, you're like, oh, this guy will play a little bit more. Usually, like the young players, the academy players get the higher numbers. I know it's a little different for international things, but lower numbers tend to boost my positivity that he will play in this tournament. But he probably won't. If I'm being 100 honest, I'm boosted in confidence he could play. I don't know how much he will play, though. There's some good players. I think Roldan will get minutes off the bench. I think the starting lineup will look like in the midfield, Ewell, Sebastian Legette, and Kellen Acosta. 
that's pretty much locked in for the starting 11 for the uh, midfield side. Hope Busio can play. Time will tell, though. They play some games in Kansas City. Fans would love to see him play down there. Uh, then you got the defense, George Bellow from the Atlanta United, Shaq Moore, uh, James Sands, geez, Miles Robinson, center back from Atlanta United, will probably partner Walker Zimmerman in the back for the United States. Very athletic center back, Miles Robinson. Uh, Donovan, Donovan Pines, Sam Vines, and Reggie Cannon. Now, the back line, pretty self-explanatory, at least to me. I think it's Reggie Cannon, Walker Zimmerman, Miles Robinson, and Sam Vines playing left back. A lot of people really like Sam Vines and think he should be pushing, or at least given the opportunity to push Anthony Robinson for that starting left back spot. Time will tell on that. Very good prospect there. And then in goal, you got Matt Turner, Sean Johnson, and Brad Guzon. Now, Tim Melia was in the provisional squad as well. Hoped he would have made the team. Hasn't gotten a call up to this point. I was hoping he would have been called up to the team. He hasn't made an appearance yet. One of the most underrated goalies in MLS history, in the United States history. I'm hoping that at some point before he retires, he's getting old, he's 34 years old or something like that, needs to get a call up and get some sort of action for the United States. If David freaking Bingham has a cap for the United States, Tim Melia deserves a cap for the United States. That's my opinion on it. But yeah, if I had to make a starting lineup, Matt Turner would be the starter, even though <laughs> looking at the caps between the three goalies, Brad on at 64. He's just there for experience and boosting positive. He's like a Tim Ream of this team. Sean Johnson, somewhat experienced. He was supposed to be one of the favorites to take over for Tim Howard and Brad Guzon. And Matt Turner got one cap. <laughs> but Matt Turner is going to start this tournament. Matt Turner is one that I think a lot of people hope will be challenging Zach Steffen for that starting job. I think most people that are United States fans would say the top three goalies the United States have are Zach Steffen, Ethan Horvath, and Matt Turner or Sean Johnson. You can see both of them flipped around, but I think Matt Turner is very popular on some of the hipster fan side of things. The back line already said it. Reggie Cannon at right back, Sam Vines at left back, and Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson at center back. Midfield. Uh, Jackson Ewell sitting as a deep number six with Kellen Acosta and Sebastian Legette playing more as a free eight Legette with Acosta being allowed to drift back a little bit, kind of move around box to box with Legette being more of a free range attacking option, I would think. But time will tell now. Acosta can also push up as well. Two free eights, maybe. Neither one of them are really attack-minded players. I mean, I think Legette is a little bit more, but Acosta can take set pieces, which will be very nice for this team who don't really have a lot of set-piece takers. I mean, Busio, Legette, and Acosta are to think are the really only options the United States has as set-pieces, but that's what I think right now. And then up top, I think it'll go Paul Ariola, Jayassi Zardes, and Jonathan Lewis. I think Daryl DK will have a shot to be the striker. Very good player. Scored a goal for Orlando City the other day. Looks very good. Don't know what his whole club situation is going to be, if he's going to move back over to England on a permanent deal. Time will tell. He's going to be pushing Jayassi Zardes for a starting spot. I hope Daryl DK starts. My gut tells me Jayassi Zardes will start. But I think Paul Ariola and Jonathan Lewis are two players. Greg Berhalter trusts. If you look at the last Gold Cup and before he got injured, Ariola was a key member on that right side for the United States. And Jonathan Lewis, over the past year or so, he was a starter on the Olympic squad that, I mean, didn't make the Olympics, but Berhalter likes him. He's put in a couple of good performances for the United States. I think he'll start on that left wing. And if you look at the other players, I think Hoppy will probably rotate around the wings. And Giacchini will probably rotate around the wings as well. 
but both of them are strikers. You brought four strikers and two wingers, but like I said, Giacchini and Hoppy can rotate around the wings, but that's my starting 11 for the United States. Other players that missed out, Bill Hamid Timilia missed out. Then you got Cameron Carter-Vickers, Eric Palmer-Brown, who I forget exists all the time. Uh, Kyle Duncan missed the team. Chase Gaspar from Minnesota United. Justin Shea, the 17-year-old, missed the squad. Uh, Jonathan Gomez, a Louisville City kid, 17 years old, missed the squad. A lot of people were kind of expecting Che to make the squad as like a backup right back, but no caps, 17. It'd be hard to take him to this tournament, especially since you look at the right back options for the United States. I don't think a 17 year old is going to be pushing the likes of Dest, Cannon, Brian Reynolds, DeAndre Yedlin, among other people, even Tyler Adams to a certain extent. He, he doesn't play there anymore, but he can and has for the United States, but doubt it at this point in time. And a lot of the reason most of the European players are out, long season, getting stuff ready. This is their off season right now. The MLS players are currently in season right now. You've got, what, four players outside of the United States playing for this. Reggie Cannon, Shaq Moore, uh, Nicholas Giacchini, and Matthew Hoppe are from Europe or playing in Europe right now and in Portugal, Germany, France and Spain those are the only three players only four players are and they're all young players the other players like Pulisic, Reyna, McKinney, Adams, Dest all the players we mentioned before have preseasons to get worried about maybe some big moves happening maybe maybe Reyna makes a move to somewhere like Manchester City his dad played there hope he doesn't I like Giovanni Reyna don't want to see him follow Christian Pulisic and make a move to the enemy over in England, but you never know. You can do what you want. I am surprised Julian Green didn't make the team as he got called up for the last U.S. squad. I was kind of expecting him to make a resurgence into the team, but again, plays over in Germany. They're getting ready to play back in the Bundesliga, their first Bundesliga season ever. I'm not sure. They're playing in the Bundesliga next year, so probably want to get ready for that. Jordi Mihailovic, I was kind of surprised, didn't make the team. Johnny Cardozo has played as a number six for the United States, but didn't make it. Paxton Pomichol has been the captain for the United States underage level. Didn't make the squad. Uh, who else is someone that didn't make it that it was really... Josie Altador, I guess, but no one really expected that. Jesus Ferreira, two goals, two caps for the United States. Same thing with Chris Mueller. Neither one of them made the squad. Kind of surprised by that, but again, not really. They're the players that made the team, I'm not disappointed in making the team. I'm not really shocked. That player didn't make the team. I think the one that I'm most shocked about, I mean, is probably Julian Green. But again, the thing with Europe, the playing their first Bundesliga season, I just thought he'd make the team. I didn't. He's one I'm probably the most shocked about. That's probably it. There's not really a lot of changes you can make to this team. Matt Turner's going to start. He's going to get more caps. A lot of people like him. He'll build up steam to challenge Stack Stefan a little bit more. I think Zach Steffen's still got that position on lock. I think a lot of people are riding high on Ethan Horvath's penalty save in, that, in the Mexico game. But he did lose the job to Zach Steffen before. He was the guy that was going to be the number one for the United States and lost the job to Zach Steffen. Now, for Zach Steffen's case, I hope he leaves Man City, and I hope he plays somewhere that he can get a lot more consistent playing time because as a number one for your country... You're going to get pushed a lot. You'd like to say somewhat active. Like Argentina, sure, they got by with Sergio Romero for a little bit, being in the backup for like Ajax for years and a couple other, or not Ajax, where was he at? 
uh, Sampdoria. He was a backup at Sampdoria and Manchester United. I was thinking of Martin Stecklenburg for a little bit. But I don't I don't know why. But got to a World Cup final, but you would like your number one to be playing consistently. You'd like your best players to be playing consistently. So I hope he moves. I hope Ethan Horvath moves to get more consistent playing time. And yeah, that's what I'm hoping for the United States. And we talked about a little bit of transfers. Jaden Sancho, officially a Manchester United player. Great signs. Great things going on in Manchester United. Making moves. They're already in talks, apparently, to get Rafael Varane over the, over the line to get to Manchester United. Interesting to see if that actually happens. He's been linked with Man United for a few years now. It's also interesting to see what Real Madrid do at center back now that Sergio Ramos has agreed to deal with PSG. And it looks like... now. Could be completely wrong. Could be just newspapers talking out of their ass again, which happens all the time. Could be without Rafael Varane. You brought in David Alaba, but who's going to partner him? Is Eder Militao going to start next to him? He's in your team. He starts for Brazil, but will you? do you trust him to start there? Jules Koundé, uh, Pau Torres from Villarreal. Who will start next to David Alaba and center back for Real Madrid? I doubt it'd be Pau Torres, as he's a left-footed center back. I think the number one option for Real Madrid should be Jules Koundé from Sevilla. French international, makes a lot of sense to move over. Very athletic center back. Now, you wouldn't have a very tall center back partnership <laughs> between uh, Koundé and Alaba, or even Militao and Alaba. But hey, Sergio Ramos made a very good career not being the tallest defender of all time. He's average height, I mean, he's like six foot, but not insanely tall or natural height for a center back, but still the greatest defender of our generation. I think that's pretty fair to say. At least center back. Maybe not defender, but he's the greatest center back of our generation. I think that's pretty good. I think that goes without saying, but you're entitled to your opinion. That's whatever. You can do whatever you want. But yes, before we close out today's show, I'd like to congratulate the Phoenix Suns on making it to the NBA Finals. I was a big Steve Young fan. Steve Young. Steve Nash fan growing up. My great Nana lived down in Phoenix. I still have family that live in Phoenix. I got a Steve Nash book when I was a kid. Read that thing about a thousand times. Beautiful player. Beautiful man. Had hair like him. Wanted to be like Steve Nash. But a little less talented basketball-wise. Derrick Rose and Steve Nash are my two favorite players of all time when it comes to basketball. And I'm happy to see the Phoenix Suns back in the finals. And I'm happy for Chris Paul as well. 16 years in the NBA, finally in the finals. Got screwed out of chance of going to the finals with the Lakers. Now the situation is another mess that we're not going to get into right now. But happy for him. Happy for Suns fans. I worked with the I-Cubs with a, with a dude that was a Suns fan. Happy for him. And, yeah. And it looks like the Lightning have wrapped this Stanley Cup up. So whatever. But, yeah. The Bucks won tonight as well. So 3-2 to the new Milwaukee Bucks right now without Giannis. So, Yeah. I'd love to see a finals in Milwaukee and Phoenix just so we could see ESPN squirm a little bit. That'd be really fun to see. But yeah, I think that's all I've got for you today on this Friday edition of the Logan Blackman Show. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy your 4th of July weekend. Be safe, be smart, hang out with family, watch the fireworks, do all that kind of stuff. Enjoy your weekend, and I will see you all later. Peace.